Hey everyone, and welcome to season 2022 of Turn Up The Talk. This is a mental health podcast, so some content discussed may be triggering for some. If you're not feeling up to it, hit pause, come back another day, we're not going anywhere. If it is an emergency, please don't hesitate to contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, that is a 24-hour service. Also guys, our golf day tickets are now on sale for our 2022 season fundraiser. It's our third year running, huge event. We love it. Everyone who attends it loves it. It's just, like I said, our big season fundraiser that kind of keeps us going. We'd really appreciate your support. Tickets are in our bio. We are pretty limited with how many tickets we have left, so be sure to get in quick. That is on Friday, the 8th of April. That'll be at Randwick Golf Course in Malabar, 12.30 p.m. tee-off. If you can't make the golf day but you do want to support us, you could join us at the Clavelli Hotel from 6.30 p.m. that night. We'll do raffles, we'll do giveaways, we'll do prizes, just the post-function event. It's for all levels of, of playing ability. So we've got people who think they should be on the PGA Tour, like Lockie Drew Morris, and there's people who just go there to have a bit of fun. So everyone's welcome, and we can't wait to see you there. Tickets include 18 holes of golf, unlimited beverages and lunch, and a little Turn Up The Talk 2022 Golf Day merchandise exclusive package. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We really hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. If you do enjoy it, it would help us if you could like, subscribe, and share it around. Thank you. Turn Up The Talk podcast. Tackling mental health together. G'day guys and welcome back to another episode of Turn Up The Talk. You're joined by Pat Clifton, Lockie Drew Morris and today we're joined by a very special guest, Russell Manso. Russell, thanks for taking the time to join us, mate. Thanks guys, thanks for having me. So we'll go through the the story of your whole life but before I do, you started an organisation called The Voice of a Survivor. Can we just briefly get an explanation of what that's about, how that all started before we really dive into the whole journey? For sure. The Voice of a Survivor is an organisation I established five years ago with the intention of helping survivors of institutional sexual and physical abuse go through uh, the compensation process. Um, our aim was to make sure that uh, our clients weren't just being treated like a, a commodity. We, our aim was to create a, a safe framework where clients, survivors felt safe in telling their story and they, and they felt supported. Um, you know, and, and, and we ensured that um, the clients are you know, getting what they need. They need counselling. They need... They need that support. They need someone to believe in them. They need, um, you know, that that it's okay. It's a safe place to tell their story of abuse because uh, a perpetrator's greatest weapons is the, the, the victim's silence and shame. And we want to change. And that was always one of the aims of what I wanted to do was to change that and put the that, that and, and pass that that shame and that guilt and all those horrible things back to the rightful owner, as the perpetrator himself. So um, we've been going for five years now. In that period of time, we've got, you know, over 13,000 clients. We work with 35 different law firms nationally. We just want to make sure that these people are being treated and given respect that they deserve. And, um, man, that's the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life, you know. And I, I talk about, I talk about, you know, I live my life these days, you know, I give more than I take. And, you know, I've never went without since I've done that, taken that approach to life, you know. I've... Um, Oh, this work is so rewarding being part of the hit because it's part of the, when they, they come to us, that's the beginning, that's the first on the footpath to recovery and, and healing. And so we're really passionate about it. And we're really, and uh, you know, um, man, it's, as I said, it beats Robin Banks, I'll tell you. So, as you mentioned there, Robin Banks, you spent 23 or over 23 years of your life in prison. If we can just go back to the beginning, I mean, in a, a documentary you did with the Soku Creative 
documentary that came out a few months ago, you mentioned you had a real hardworking family. You know, you grew up with three brothers who were hardworking trader. You had a sister who was a nurse and you described it as a loving and supporting family. What entitled you into a life of crime? Look, I grew up in Mount Druitt and, um, in, in those days, you know, my, my, you know, my dad was a hard worker and, and as, as mentioned, and, um, I used to see these people up at bus stops at like five or six o'clock in the morning, rain, hail or shine, coming home at six o'clock at night. And I just said, and I couldn't even afford a car, you know, and they just had nothing, but they just busted their asses in, in factory jobs and, and everything like that. And I just didn't see myself ever being one of those people. I, um, you know, when I, you know, and I was also a kid that was car mad. You know, I, 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 I like loved the hot about cars and everything. And I used to see the blokes coming home from, from prison. It was like they were returned servicemen. You know, I mean, they come home and everyone loved them, and they were well dressed, they were fit looking, and and you know, within weeks they've got the nice car. They got that back in the day it was SLR five thousands, A nine Xs, and XG one Tiranas and GT Falcons and that sort of stuff. And next minute, you know these other people could work their whole lifetime and never afford one of them. These blokes get out of jail within three or four weeks and were driving out, got the best, best girls, all their houses are done up and that sort of thing. And I just thought because there was no other great role, like role, well, you know, I'm, that I never got to see of, of, of having that success and, 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 and getting out of that place, you know, and having another life. I, I looked at them guys as role models, you know what I mean? I thought that was the way out for me. And that's sort of, that's what sort of appealed to me. You're speaking of cars, so the first time you got arrested and, and went to a boy's home was actually for, correct me if I'm wrong, a police chase. You stole a Holden Ute? Yeah, I stole a Holden Ute and um, got in, in, into a police chase in, in, in Parramatta. And it was a whole old HT Ute with three speed on the floor. And it was like, now, and I, I, you know, I wasn't the best of drivers. I thought I was. I thought I was Peter Brock, and um, I soon realized I wasn't and um, crashed that. You know, um, ran away. I um, and then you know when I got home, the police had already been to my house uh, looking for me. Um, and I had to, I handed myself in and went to the Jewish Children's Court and went behind behind a, la- a woman who a, a woman called Barbara Holborough that went on and, and and was talked about being compassionate and loving kids and everything like that. But she had no problems sending me to a boys' home and, um, and you know unfortunately I ended up out at the um, the notorious Derrick Boys Home, which ended up being a subject of a 60-minute story because of the abuse that was taking place. And what happened is, you know, I got a six-month sentence. I went out to Derrick and, you know, I mean, that, that place, man, that was like all the kids that come back from Mount Druid, they, they, they glorified it was this and it was that and it was nothing like they said it was. It was, um, it was a house of horrors. It really was. It was a house of horrors. And I soon realised, you know, and I, and I soon was the recipient of, of that being the house of horrors, I was, you know, we were, we went in there and, and they put, they, there was these highly polished wooden floorboards and, and it was, it was a chart. You had to always wear socks. And what the objective is with these socks that they made you, if they chased you or tried to grab you, you couldn't run and you'd slip over and they'd be able to catch you, you know? Um, sexual abuse was rampant there by, you know, I think most of the staff members were compliant in it. If not, I, you know, didn't say anything about it, which makes them just as bad. And, um, I, you know, unfortunately, I, I, I didn't escape that. You know, I, I, you know, I was just a kid and I, I was, um, you know, I, I was one of these kids from Mount Druid and everyone thought I was a surfing kid from, you know, the beaches because I mop of blonde hair, blue eyes. And even when I got to Derek Boys, I remember all the other kids thinking because I had 
a hot buttered surf shirt on and all the other kids thought I was some surfing kid. And, and that was the look I had. And, um, you know, and I wasn't well developed for my, for my age. And, and uh, so I was a pretty easy target for these, um, these sexual predators. And, um, yeah, and it changed the part it changed the course of my life. It, it really did. It, um, it, it created a void in me that I didn't have before I went in there. It was like this emptiness. It was like this darkness. I, you know, I was a kid that took a lot of pride in myself and, you know, drugs, the use of drugs in them days didn't really cross my mind because it didn't appeal to me. But um, I didn't want to be a drug addict because in Mount Druitt there was a lot of examples of um, people that had destroyed their lives with drugs and, you know, and, and I didn't want to be one of them. And, um, you know, there was some people close to our family that, you know, that um, had sisters that were really destroying themselves at the time on heroin and everything like that. And that was suffering foreign to me. And I just, I used to say to my, you know, family member, I said, I never want to be like that. And, and you know, later when I ended up on heroin, she was so shocked. And, um, but as, oh, I got out of Derrick, I went back to Mount Druid and here I was, I was like the return war hero, you know, amongst other people. I didn't inform on anyone. I'd done my time and got on with it. And then, um, but there was this void inside me. There was a depression. There was an anxiety. I, you know, I couldn't be around older men. And, uh, you know, it was the first time I guess, I really experienced what depression was. I really, it was that first time I ever experienced that. And it was, I was a, you know, I was a pretty happy-go-lucky kid before that. And, um, but what I realised, what I, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, and then what I realised now was I was a kid that was really badly traumatised. I'd come out of Derek a really traumatised kid. And the word trauma back in them days weren't even discussed. It's, it's, you know, it's only in the last 20 years that people are talking about what trauma is. And, um, and I'm glad they're talking about it because it's real. And, um, but um, I come out of there highly traumatised. But what I did come out of Derek was I learned a lot of Derek. I learned how to steal Porsches. I learned how to break into sports stores because the kids from the inner city were way more advanced than the kids out of my way. And, um, and um, so I learned how to steal Porsches and everything like that. And it wasn't... Raping children and bashing children and everything like that, that's not a deterrent for kids not to reoffend. You know, that's just not. And, and, and we're getting, we're overall, well, you know, it's, it's a proven fact that, you know, from the jails, Grafton jails and Tamworth jails, bashing the shit out of people and hurting them and traumatising them don't change their behaviour. It, it, it exacerbates trauma if they're already re, uh, suffering from trauma. Um, that's not the answer. So what happened was out of Derrick, I ended up stealing a Porsche. A few months later, I ended up, this time I ended up at Bajura Children's Court. And, um, uh, you know, and this judge, I went before this judge and, and he said to me, you know, his, his comments were, how dare a kid from Mount Drill go to an affluent area, I stole a Porsche from Whale Beach and steal a Porsche. And he said, and he mentioned my area and I didn't think there was such as class crimes in Australia, but he obviously thought there was. And he sentenced me and he, to 12 months and he stipulated that go, he said it to be served uh, in an adult jail as a deterrent for future reoffending. So I guess his take on it was we will send you to an adult prison, you'll get sexually abused, and that will deter you from, so in other words, government sanctioned um, child abuse. Um, I, 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 and, that, and that's what did take place. They sent me to Long Bay Prison. It was, it was a shock to me that I was actually going there. Like my criminal history at the time, I'd had maybe three or four um, 
thing, uh, things on my convictions on my record. It didn't warrant me, nowhere near did it warrant me going to Long Bay Prison. There was that, when I got there, there was other kids that were there um, uh, under 18, but they were there because they the boys couldn't keep them. They were escaping and they were bashing officers and everything like that. And that wasn't, and, but even still, they didn't deserve what, because they all, it all happened to a lot of them, the sexual abuse. They didn't, it didn't warrant that. So what happened was I, uh, the first night I got there, they put us in a wing. It was called the one wing section of Long Bay Central Industrial in prison. And um, they put us in a protection wing because for our own protection, they told us, but they housed us with the worst sex offenders uh, in the country at the time. Um, so not much good was going to come out. I guess it's like feeding a fucking a lamb chop to a lion, so to speak. So... Um, the sex offenders were given the job of deterring us from reoffending, and um, I was sexually abused the first night there by two convicted pedophiles. And um, a couple of days later, I was introduced to heroin for the first time by a convicted negrophiliac, and negrophiliac is a person who has sex with dead bodies. Um, in order to, the, the negrophiliac was a bit worried that I was going to tell on him or something like that, so introduced me to heroin in, in, uh, in order to sort of keep to silence me. And then, um, and I, you know, and then it just set me on a trajectory of drug abuse and, and crime. I, I got out of, eventually got out, and uh, you know, I had a taste for heroin, and I and I had a void inside, depression, anxiety, and trauma that only heroin at the time could numb. And that's all it ever done for me. Heroin was just it took me away from my feelings and um, and my emotions and um. um and it took me away from all of that, and um, it was just, and uh, it didn't stop for a long time. And you know, I ended up back in prison um, about a year after I got out of the of the jail. So the deterrent sentencing sort of stuff didn't really work. Um, uh, but with a taste for heroin, and my by this stage, my mum had moved to Liverpool, which wasn't far from Cabramatta, and at the time, Cabramatta had a heroin. There was an epidemic there with heroin being sold around there. So, and you know, I soon got in the groove of that, and I was scoring heroin every day. And before I knew it, I had my first real heroin habit. And and you know, people say to me, "What's heroin like to withdraw from?" I say this: picture the worst flu that you've ever had—man flu, woman flu, whatever you want to call it—and times it by ten, and that's what it's like. And you know, and picture that with cramps in your stomach at the same time. That just that—it's in your bones. It's in your it's the most horrible feeling. And so when I first, first time I ever experienced heroin withdrawals, I thought I was going to die. And, um, and it created a whole heap of fear in my life that I didn't want to feel that feeling. So I was this, it was like a mouse wheel. I was on this mouse wheel, always trying to chase heroin, always trying to, cause I, I, I didn't want to feel, I didn't want to encounter uh, the feelings of the void and the shame and the guilt and everything like that. And then I didn't want to, uh, 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 feel the withdrawals and everything like that. I was, man, I was telling you what, it was like living in your head 24-7 trying to escape something. And um, and I spent my life, a long time of my life, trying to run from something, you know, and um, eventually ended up back in prison. And, um, you know, uh, this time uh, for breaking into some, um, at the time it was called David Jones, uh, uh, Harvey, uh, it was called Grace Brothers, which is now David Jones and Corey Sennel got pinched for breaking into some department stores and went before the courts and I got 11 years with a non-parole period of four years for those. Once again, deterrent sentences. Um, uh, my, uh, 11 years. Back then they had remission, so I've done about two and a half years. I went down to the notorious Goulburn prison and um, 
And when I was down there, I, um, you know, I, I was just fascinated by bank robbers. And um, you know, I, I recall a really good old guy who, you know, who left an indelible imprint on my life. And he was just so brutally honest with me. And I, and he used to say to me, Russell, I know you're impressed by these guys. He said, I'm one of them. He said, you don't need to be impressed. He said, just get out, get a job. And I said, because I said to him, now, I said, Ray, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you go about robbing these banks? What do you suggest? You know, I hear all these different things. You, he said, just get a job on the council. And he said, and, and I said, and what? And, and, and put banks under surveillance. And he goes, no. Nah. He said, just don't do them. He said, because it's a lonely old life of a bank robber. And those words echoed in my head for a hell of a long time after that. You know, I, was, I remember sitting in all different jails and places and everything like that and put my head on the pillow and if I did have a pillow in prison. And, and those words echoed in my head because it's a lonely old life. It doesn't matter what crime you commit. Prison's a very lonely place because at the end of the day, you know, you don't, you're not, you go to sleep or whatever, or you, you don't have dinner with your family at night time. You, you're not around your kids. You're not around the people who you, you're given the opportunity, would prefer to be around. And, um, you know, that's the punishment. And what, you know, I'm, I'm doing, you know, it's, I just, I, it blows me away that these people call for blood when someone's committed a crime. And I'll tell you something now, that is, it, that for me was always the punishment, you know, not seeing my mother, not being around my family, not being there for, you know, birthdays and, 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 you know, Christmases. I spent 23 Christmases away. I spent 23 birthdays away. You know what I mean? Um, So what happened was I got out in, um, it was 28th of June, 1998. I got out from Goulburn and within, and I tried, you know, I, I went and got a job with my brother. My brother's an electrician. I went and got a job with him and, I, you know, I tried to go straight, but once again, you know, I'd bump into someone on the street and they'd, they'd be stoned on heroin, so I'd get some, I'd buy that off them, and I'm trying to do it socially and trying to do it on weekends, which eventually gravitated to two and three days, and then four and five, and then six, and then full on, and then, and then you know, I robbed my first bank, and um, you know, and that the bank thing was a, a thrill to be quite honest, you know, that you know, and people get addicted to that, and like you know, because. That nut shit had happened to me. I was so disassociated. I didn't, you know, no empathy, no compassion was shown to me in those boys' homes or by the courts or anything like that. You know, I, you know, I know a lot different now, but, you know, once again, with the benefit of hindsight, I can look back and see that, you know, that kid, what that kid was going for. He didn't know about empathy and compassion. He was that disassociated and that badly desensitised. When he ran into a bank, he didn't know them feeling them people were trauma, that they were scared. You know, he didn't know that um, what he was doing was traumatising those people because, you know, he was that disassociated. And that's how it was. I was just so disassociated with everything, you know. And, um, you know, I robbed that first bank and it was really funny, you know. I remember robbing it and I remember and I was over in the North Shores, the Commonwealth Bank at Gordon, and I remember driving back to Liverpool with the intentions of going to buy some heroin and then buying some, going to buy some children to park the car to get on. Where I parked the car, all of a sudden these cop cars are pulling up, blocking me in on off that fuck, I've just run my first bank, I'm about to get pinched for it already. And where I parked the car, a bank had just been robbed where I parked the car. You know, it was just ironic that it happened. And I just, yeah, and I jumped out the fucking car and I just, I was seeing these coppers all ducking in this bank and I was thinking, fuck, you know, it was just what a crazy day. But, um, and then it just, it just went on. I robbed a couple more and then a couple of mates got out of jail and we'd done a few more. And then um, eventually we got arrested for 
because one of the boys never got his balaclava on, so they put a surveillance on him and then they see me turn up. I, by that stage, I had, you know, a nice car and motorbike and I was living in a nice unit and I, I couldn't justify my lifestyle, you know, but I also had a very serious $1,500 a day heroin habit that needed to be addressed. And, and the only way I could do that was rob banks to pay for the for them to, to do that because, once again, it was a form of escapism. Man, I'll tell you, the worst place I could ever be in my life was in my head straight, you know, because I had so much going on. That head of mine, man, was a war zone. You know, my self-talk, what, you know, the shame and the guilt and, you know, and the nightmares, the replay of their nightmares, like, man, I'll tell you what, if I didn't have heroin, if I didn't go stand out, like, if I slept at all, like, and I still do, I, I'm a really bad insomniac. I'll be lucky to sleep three hours a night at the moment, you know, and, um, and I've done everything. I've done all this very well, medicate, you know, I just struggle to be on medication. There's just something in me, like, oh, you know, I don't want to be on medication, so I don't take it. But I don't, what I do is I'm encouraging, if the doctor says you need it, take it, you know what I mean? I just have this different thing in my head, like I'm, I'm a searcher and I'm trying to find another way through it. But um, so, yeah, so what happened was I ended up getting pinched with some banks and, um, and then I had no intentions because I was struggling, man. I, you know, I, you know, I, I was in prison. I ended up withdrawing from heroin. And then the nightmares were there, and oh man, it was like it was like this war zone in my head, um, all the shame and everything like that. And, and, and sitting in a cell of a night time, that ain't a punishment for an abuse survivor. Sitting in a cell for twenty, or, you know, whatever it is, 16, 18 hours a night, with your head and that shame and that guilt and all your replays and these nightmares and everything like that going on, man, that like that was that was more than enough punishment. And um, so I decided to escape and. Um, so I got really fit and um, and I had a court case coming up at Campsie, which is like near Bankstown in southwest Sydney and um, went to Campsie Court and, um, you know, you know, we'd had a handcuff key. One of the boys, because in prison, people are so ingenious and they made a handcuff key out of a dustpan, you know, and um, um, there used to be like these saddles that you put electrical conduit on it and they had the right little ridge in it for a handcuff key and I've seen handcuffs get made out of them. So we, we went there with, to to court with a handmade handcuff key and we had um, uh, some bag of salt that we'd hidden on ourselves and, and, you know, as soon as we come off, we had the handcuffs off through the salt in the copper's eyes, bang, and got away, you know, and got away. And in my story, I got um, I got away I got over to Perth. I went back and robbed um, the National Australia Bank that I'd been on remand for uh, at Taramara, and um, I, um, I, um, and there was like a Vietnamese security guard, and you know, and I robbed him. I'd taken his gun and that off him before, and um, so on, on my way out, it was near Christmas. I think it was like Friday. I'm pretty good with dates, so I remember it was Friday the fifteenth of December, ten days away from Christmas, and I. Um, and I'd given his gun back because when I when I first went in, he goes, "Man, I'm going to lose my job over this. This is the second time you've got me." And I, on the way out, I give him his gun back and said, "Merry Christmas," you know. And he just looked at me in shock. And my mates look at me saying, "You've just given a bloke a loaded gun back. You can just shoot us in the head." And, uh, you know, I didn't want this poor bloke for his job. But um, anyway, got away, got over to Perth, got went to Perth, and then we flew into Darwin and um, met a girl in a nightclub. And well, by that time, we were running short of cash, and we got another bank up there. And, got apprehended up. Oh, look, I got pinched in, um, I jumped off a bus in Alice Springs and um, it was funny, you know, it was a funny story because uh, 
on the way down to Alice Springs, I, I pulled in. I just thought, fuck, I, I never had luggage and nothing like that. And I knew people were sus on me and they were looking for me. And so I bought a pair of um, old hiking boots from a place called Pine Creek. I bought the um, a Cobra hat with the corks and that on and a shirt, I love Australia. And um, I was trying my best to look like a Swedish backpacker, you know. And I jumped off the bus in the morning. I met this, I met this Norwegian girl or Swedish girl or whatever on the bus and I, you know, I had some cash from the bank and I said, when we get there, I'll take you to a five-star hotel and have, we'll have a good time. And she was all for it. And um, so when we got off the bus, you know, these, there's a bunch of blokes hanging around and um, anyway, as soon as I jumped out, they jumped all over me and, and then I'll just put on my best Swedish accent on the sand. Fucking Helga, Helga, call the embassy. I'm being attacked. I'm being, and I was making out I was a Swedish backpacker, you know, and, um, and, they're looking at me and they're, I could see them looking at each other thinking we could have a diplomatic crisis here, an incident here, you know, and um, and she's looking at me and saying, hell, God, I'll call the embassy, I'm being attacked, I'm being attacked. And this old copper walks over and he had a, like a ruler in his hand and he goes, okay, hands from Sweden. And he said, if you haven't got a tattoo on your right shoulder, why he said, I'm going to let you go. And he lifted it up and there was a tattoo and he goes, the game's up, Russell, and I just knew he had me, you know. But, um, you know, and I, and I went through a lot. Like, I went through the courts. I got the biggest sentence ever handed out in the Northern Territory for an armed robbery, which was nine years. Because up at that stage, I'd never had any bank robberies in, in the Northern Territory. I, I think I was maybe the first or second person to ever rob a bank in the Northern Territory. And um, and uh, let me tell you something now. That Northern Territory is a hard place. It's um, Everything's sort of sold with violence, you know. The, the prison officers, uh, uh, that's their favourite thing to do. So, um they felt that I was a bloke from the eastern states that needed to be taught a lesson, and uh, I was quite confrontational on a daily basis. You know, I, I um, you know, I ended up in an isolation segregation unit for poor behaviour. So I was told because, you know, I wouldn't pick up. You know, I always took the the view that you know I wasn't someone else's cleaner, and I weren't going to be cleaning someone like they. So they'd set me up. They'd get someone to throw a piece of paper on the ground and get me to pick it up. They were just trying to break me and I just said, I ain't doing it. So I ended up in, in a segregation unit and um, they used to have the rights were come in every day and, and, and just test themselves. And, and, and I'll give them that. You know, I'll give them credit. They used to let me, they fight me one-on-one and I loved it. I was like Conan the Bar. I was like just some animal that had come out of this little fucking cage every day and just attack. Was this their way of rehabilitation or that they... That- that was their take of rid. They were going to break me and you know break my spirit and everything like that. And that was I don't know. Like what happened with that was, and they I'll tell you what I'll give them credit. Initially that I, I was I was doing pretty good against them. But what they were doing was they were going away and training. And this was before the days of UFC and everything. And they were doing wrestling moves and and they just started getting better and better. And they took the fun out of it for me because they started getting better and I started losing. And it's not much fun when you're losing all the time. And then some blokes got you tied up and, and armbar or something like that on the ground. That's before armbars were popular. And, uh, and, and they were trying all these different moves on me. I was going, fine. So one day, you know, they opened the cell door and I didn't come out. And they were going, where is he? It's a set up. And they were thinking, and I, and I just said, I sat on the bed and I said, I ain't doing it. And when I said, why is that? I said, you, you guys are getting too much joy out of this. So I stopped, you know, and it was, I sort of guess, you know, it was a big turning point in my life, you know, although, you know, it was the start of, a big turning point in my life, you know, and I, you know, I was pretty dead. I, I said, you know, I'm not, not giving, I just made, I, I just watched what joy people can get out of my misery. And I tried to minimize, you know, after that, that's what a lesson I took out of there. 
watch what joy you can allow people to have out of your own misery. And um, so, you know, I just made a concerted effort. I wanted to get off drugs. I, you know, I wanted to um, and do something a bit different with my life. And, um, you know, and, and I, I did like, I, I eventually went back to New South Wales to the armed robberies and uh, fronted and um, I uh, eventually got 15 years with a non-parole period of eight years. After that eight years, I ended up building up here where I live today. And I was a fitness instructor at a Chinese jockey school of all places. And, um, you know, and I met the mother of my children and we went off and started a marketing and advertising company and I bought a house and, you know, things looking dandy. But what was still happening to me is I was still having the nightmares. I just, I guess I learned how to suppress them a, a bit better. And I tried to deal. I was doing narcotics anonymous means. I was, I got out of jail eight years clean and I just had sort of a vision on what I wanted for myself or anything like that. But what I had never done was I'd never done proper trauma counselling, which I'd fully recommend, you know, anyone that's going for any traumatic event, I think it's a must to really deep compartmentalise it. And I was sort of like, I had, I still had the, the nightmares, which my pa- I couldn't explain to my partner. I didn't feel good. I didn't want to tell her, you know, because I used to think that, that sort of thing for a man and a sexual abuse survivor, it's not an easy thing to talk to a female about. To sort of say, oh, this is what happened to me because my head's telling me she thinks I'm I'm not a man, you know, and uh, and it's and you know with the work I've done today, I know that's not the case, and I know women are very very supportive of that, like people that have went through that. So anyone that's suffering, having that sort of mental uh, talk in their head, it's bullshit talk, you know. And um, so yeah, and what happened? I end up having a drink, and um, I don't know about you, but I'm not the type of bloke that can have one Tim Tam. I eat the packet. You know, I don't have one row of chocolate, I eat the block. And I've when I have one beer, I don't have a beer, I drink a carton. And when I drink a carton of beer, I have a line of Coke. And when I have a hangover, I have a shot of heroin. And and that's just what happened to me. And, you know, so I ended up doing that. So I ended up having one beer, two cartons, a bag of Coke, hangover the next day, shot of heroin, and, and I'm back on the fucking mouse wheel, so to speak. So... Long story short, for 10 years, I struggled to get clean again. Um, and, and, you know, you know, I struggled to get clean. I, I was just really, I mean, I was, I was talking to one of my mates today, uh, the other day, he's from the river, and it's a bloke who's never given up on me. He's, um, and, uh, you know, he's helped me when no one else would and give me a place to stay and put me in because he always believed in me. And, um, you know, and we were talking about it the other day. But what happened was what my life changed when, Julia Gillard, the best, as far as, that, you know, all these, all these people, I, I, Julia Gillard, the Labor MP, brought in what was called the Royal Commission of Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. And, um, and I've seen it on the 7.30 report, and I'd spoken to a bloke on, a, on the way to Perth on a plane about it, and I, and, and I, and I just, I was interested, and I started reading about it in newspapers and what they were doing, and, and so one day I just, I don't know, and it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. I wrote a one-page letter outlining what had happened to me and it was like a message in a bottle I was thinking I'm just going to send this see where it goes and I did and I was just so shocked two weeks later they called me on a legal visit in prison because what happened was I ended up getting pinched for a bank I, I just want to uh, touch on this I, I come out of a bank in Coolangatta Suncourt Metway Bank and um, and um, a bunch of super citizens fucking tackled me and um, one of them, they had me on the fucking ground and one of them was saying to me, mate, I've just saved your life. And, uh, you know, and uh, and I was just saying, can you just stop me punching him in the head? What's that got to do with saving me a life, you know? And um, 
And, uh, you know, I ended up going to the prison. I had every intention of killing myself. I really made I really made peace with myself of knocking myself. You know, I, I, you know, I'd had enough. I was beaten. I was broken. I was just broken. I was, I was in a thousand pieces that I, and I couldn't see me being mended. And um, so I got to the prison. The, the objective would have been to hang myself with a coaxial cable that goes on the back of the TV. And when I got there, it was cut down. There's so many blessings that so many signs, you know, you know in my life. And it was cut down. It was about the size of two inches. It wouldn't have wrapped around my big tail, let alone my neck. And the next day, a guy who I hated and who I suspected of being a sex offender offered me a shot of heroin. And, um, and uh, like, cause there's like a, a 30 centimetre display window in the cell door so people can look in and out and they can keep an eye on you. And uh, he came up and he said, I know you don't like me. I know we've never seen eye to eye. He said, but I'm offering this as an act of goodwill and hopefully we can be mates. And I just banged on the window. I said, no matter how bad I was feeling and how broken I was, I said, oh, I could never take something off someone like you because you're just a shit bag. And um, I got out into the unit and I got down the unit and there was a young bloke. He's got all his books out studying psychology and, and I said, and I said, what are you doing? So I'm studying psychology. He said, remember years ago, you gave me that advice. He said, I took your advice. He said, you know, I changed my life. And he looked me up and down in disdain and said, maybe you should take your own, get your own advice and do something with your life. And um, got caught out for a legal visit. And then the bloke um, was a mate of mine. He, he heard what was happening. There was a lawyer and he told me, and, I, and he said, mate, I said, I thought my life was over. I thought I was going to get 20 years. He said, mate, could you handle doing, you know, three or four years? I said, I could handle that. I said, I'm, I'm down with that. And then um, on the way home, I, I, I looked in the education block and they said you could do a tertiary preparation program. So within a period of 24 hours, my whole life, I, I felt good that morally I wouldn't take something off someone who I thought was a sex offender. I later confirmed it was. I'd done something previously that influenced a young fella's life to do something with his life and he was doing some education. I wasn't going to get... 20 years, I was mostly going to get a sentence that would mostly allow me to really address myself. I could do, do education and then, you know, and in the meantime, I started seeing a lot about, so from I went from 24 hours, and that's what I was saying to someone who ever feeling suicidal, put it off for a day, you know, because things can change a lot in 24 hours, you know, and talk, you know, to, and do try to talk to as many people as you can because that's what I did in that 24 hours and it changed, you know, and all of a sudden I had all this hope, you know, I had, you know, I had a hope. I, don't, I guess, you know, I had this light that, that turned back on me from the darkness that I was in and it changed my life. So I started seeing all this stuff about the Royal Commission and, and I, you know, as I said, I wrote to them, I wrote this one-page letter and two weeks later they turn up and, and, you know, and, and, and the first thing they did, they got me a trauma counsellor. They said, mate, you need to talk to a trauma counsellor. And I went, oh, when did this start happening? Why, why, you know, and I was sort of shocked, but this woman was amazing. You know what, I, I'm... And it was just, it was so, it was such a beautiful, it was like being a, being like a hot piece of steel getting ducked, dropped into a cold bucket of water and it was like this heat had just been taken out of me. It was just this, such this beautiful feeling when I could unpack this stuff and I could talk to someone about what had happened to me and I wasn't being judged and I felt freely talking about it. And then and that person was saying to me, you know, and doing the breakdown would be and going, you know, and this is what you would have done and this is what, you know, and this is what you can do. And, and this person gave me strategies to deal with it and, and, you know, and breaking it down. And it was just amazing. It was like, wow, it was like I was reborn again. And, um, you know, and then I was in jail and I was in like, so I started talking to, they had their, the Royal Commission had their phone number 
on uh, on the prison on the prison phone. So you could just push a number and you could talk to them anytime. I started talking to them. And I sort of got put in a bit of a position in prison because in prison there's 60 blokes in a yard and everyone knows you know, Johnny and Fred's son Johnny scored two goals in soccer. Everyone knows what you're talking to and they know that at 3.30 John jumps on and talks to his missus because his kids just got out from school. So everyone knows what they're, they're talking about. And, and I could see a little bit of movement. You could pick, Giles, one of these places you could pick up on the vibe. So I could see a couple of young blokes thinking that oh, possibly he's there on the phone talking to the coppers and I, and. So I had to call a yard meeting and I called 60 bikes in the yard and I said, look, I know a few years and I pointed the kids and I said, I know you are a bit tough. Some of you think I'm talking to coppers and I'm not talking to coppers. I'm talking to a Royal Commission of Institutional Responses, Child Sexual Abuse, about what happened to me. Nothing to do with you. got nothing to worry about. Um, uh, but I'm talking about me and I'm trying to address what happened to me. I'm not addressing what happened to you because I don't give a fuck what happened to you. But... Um, but here I am, and, and you know, I'm, I'm fucking got a standing ovation for it. Like, these blokes were just clapping, and they were really, really, really supportive of it. And, you know, and they, you know, so many people, and I guess, you know, that's where the voice of a survivor was born that day in that yard meeting, because so many people come up to me and said, look, mate, the same thing happened to me. How do we go about this? And so I connected them, and, and you know, and, and I sat down and, and basically recorded, like, you know, we jumped on a computer and typed up their version of what happened to them and everything like that. So they could provide it to the Royal Commission. And, um, you know, and, you know, I was in that prison for like two years and 60 people. I helped 60 people, introduced them to the Royal Commission and, and uh, started the healing process with them. And I eventually ended up doing four years. And on that one, I ended up back in jail in New South Wales on an interstate transfer and some old charges I had to front up on. And then I, um, and then um, I got awarded in a compensation while I was in prison. So, um, but I put myself in a rehab because I was four years clean when I got out and I just realised that I had to go to rehab because I didn't only just have a drug problem, I had a living problem as well because jail doesn't teach you much about living. So I put myself in a rehab at Coffs Harbour and, you know, whilst I was in rehab, I had, you know, lawyers and psychologists and that contact me and saying, Russell, you know, you're, you're the guy that's got to do this. You're the one who can do this. You can create this this platform where survivors in the community or any in prisons are going to come forward and tell their stories in a safe environment, you know, and I it was born. I, I remember I bought a laptop computer and um, I didn't know how to use it because, Joel, one thing they will make sure you know nothing about is technology because they know how hard that makes it for you. So um, I got this laptop computer and I, I remember putting an ad in Gumtree and I got this girl turns up and she turned up with a big bunch of crystals and, put them all around and done a chakra alignment before we started work. And I said, all I need you to do is better type. I'm going to talk to you. I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll record these people. I need you to transcribe it onto, you know, and I've and I, and I, and I got another girl who worked for me who, who just robbed me blind. And then I just he said, you know, I, I went and seen this guy who's a businessman. I said, can you come in? And the concept of what we do, and he said, we can really make this work. And him and I just, busted our asses for 12 hours a day, seven days a week for, for about two or three years to really make this happen. And, um, and um, you know, a lot of people have come forward to us and it's, you know, and in, in, in saying that, you know, my own mental health, you know, crisis, I had a few, you know, I had, you know, I had to go and put myself in a wellness centre, a place up here in the Northern Rivers called Gunnabar, which is a treatment centre because I was struggling, you know, I was struggling with my own, had to restructure how I ran the business. I had to restructure that. I was doing a lot of the interviews, the trauma interviews myself, and I, and I didn't realise how much it was taking a toll on me, you know. And um, 
So I had to sort of step away from that and employ other people to do it. And, and my position here is walking around. Now I go around telling my story and hoping I can inspire other people to come forward and do it, you know, whether it's through podcasts or we've got a book coming out in a, in a few weeks or, you know, um, TV shows or whatever. Whatever it may be, whatever it may be, I've, um, you know, I love doing it. I just love telling my story because the more I tell my story, and I, and I, talk, I talk to people about this, you know what I mean? The more I tell my story, the, the more I heal, you know, the more I heal and, you know what I mean? And they, you know, I, I, there's, I do a lot of Narcotics Anonymous, you know, and, and there's, some, there's some really good stuff. And any, I think that, you know, for people who have any addiction problems or anything like that, I think it's a really good place to go because, you know, it, it addresses a lot of mental health. You've got really good support there. And so, um, you know, and they say you're only sick of your secrets, you know, and, um, you know, I don't try to keep a secret for too long, especially if it's detrimental to my mental health. You know, um, I don't try to keep secrets for too long. And um, so I, um, you know, I do a lot of work today. I do, um, I, I've got, I, I still work with a trauma counsellor. Unfortunately, he just got flooded out in Lismore, so we're just going to have to find somewhere else to go. But, uh, you know, you know, mental, you know, I'm passionate about this sort of stuff. I, you know, I get a lot of phone calls. Unfortunately, with Facebook Messenger and stuff like that, well, initially when I first got out of prison, I was, man, I'd see my, someone trying to ring me in Messenger at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was answering the phone calls because I thought I could save the world, you know. I can't save the world if I can't save myself. And um, so um, it's really important to, for me to create, you know, good mental health hygiene, I don't, I turn my phone off at the night time. I don't take phone calls after six o'clock. I, um, I look after myself first. I go to the gym. I, I you know, I, um, you know, for me, physical exercise is a real big part of my, my mental health strategy. You know, I think, you know, for me, training an hour or two hours a day is the best antidepressant I can ever take. And I think there's scientific proof behind it. Train, doing two hours exercise mightn't be convenient for other people. I might not sue them. They need other things. But I'm sure, you know, creative type people, you know, can get that. I mean, my, my brain just doesn't stop. I've got these one of these brains. And I still think it's a form of escapism, whether it's doing business concepts or looking for opportunities. I'm always looking for opportunities for other people too. You know, I, um, I, um, I'm always trying to, especially for my clients, I, you know, I might have a client that's fucking really good musician and I, you know, I'm always asking, asking, I'm always just trying to improve. Like I, I, I travel long, I go, I mean, I went down to Albury a few weeks ago and, and talked to this woman who does um, the magic mushroom stuff, treating people with that. And I, I didn't want to try the product. I just wanted to talk to her clients. I wanted to get feedback from them, you know, because I don't believe that there's a one shoe fits all for depression there's no, or anxiety or trauma. I just want to find, I want to know, I want to know, you know, what, you know, what will this period person experience? Because I want to have a lot in my arsenal to sort of say, well, mate, I can, you know, I can take, you know, I can help you get into a gym or a sporting group. Or I can connect with these people or that people or anything. I want to, want to know what works. And these are your options. You know, I want to know, I, I you know, I, 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 I'm really interested in what works and what don't work. I'll tell you what don't work, getting traumatised people, locking them in a cell for 24 hours a day where they've got to just, you know, and especially now with, with COVID, like these blokes, uh, this, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of prisoners and 
Uh, Long Bay, they went 28 days without a shower. 20, and, you know, that's here in Australia. Not a third world country, that's here in Australia. They went 28 days without a shower. And, um, you know, and I know if you're a person like me, in them days, I'll tell you something, in them days when I, uh, you know, if I was back to when I was 20, I would have knocked myself in them those conditions. I have no doubt. And, and a lot of it happened. There's some really, in our prisons at the moment, like, man, there's some real, the people are getting out. There's blokes getting out of there, black men and women that are getting out of there really seriously damaged. A lot worse than they actually went in, like, you know, and this, and that's where I, I'm really keen to change that, that culture. Like, I'm, I'm getting a bit of work out of Christian services now, doing mentoring programs, but that's even delayed until this. COVID sort of sorted out until they worked that out to go back in and mentor because a lot of these guys they don't hear stories of when people turn their lives around all they hear is my old mate got out he's back six months later he's going to do 10 years they don't hear stories of Russell got out um, he kicked off the voice of a survivor he's been like I've been out of prison five years now you know he lives this really good life you know you know another thing you know when I was in prison I dreamed of I, I, I say, oh, I'm a real guy of putting things out. I know people laugh at this universal hippie shit, man. I'm telling you it works. You know? So I put it out to the universe. I said, you know, I'd love to be involved uh, in a boxing gym. And then, um, you know, it turns out I ended up, ended up in a boxing gym. And, I, you know, last year I went to, I took a fighter to Manchester to fight for a world title eliminator on a Joseph Parker, Derek Trishore undercard. Man, you know, uh, I, I, I dreamt of that stuff, you know. I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm up here at the moment training with Barry Hall, who's about to fight Sonny Bill Williams on the 23rd of March. You know, I train with Barry every day. Um, you know, there's a saying in NA, be, be careful what you pray for because you just might get it. And what I prayed for all those years ago when I decided to change my life, I got it tenfold. When I made this commitment to sort of, mate, I'm going to do whatever it takes to address this stuff, I'm going to bust my ass. I'm going to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week to not let this thing haunt me anymore. You know, my life changed and, you know, and I, and I reap the rewards of it today. I, I, um, it's still the crowd bucket scenario. I'll tell you what, you know, I encountered something today. I'm, I'm working on another project. But it's the crab bucket scenario and, and, and it's when one crab bucket, when one crab's about to get over the top of the bucket, there's always that one crab that wants to pull him back in. The objective is for that crab, you just got to be a bit quicker than the other crabs to get out, you know. And, I, and, I, and I'd like to think, and I, well, no, I'd like to think I know I got out of that bucket, and you know what, I'd never have to go back in there again. I live by the motto, I give more than I take, and life's kind to me, I, you know. And since I've had that uh, approach to life, I've, I didn't have to live on the streets, and God bless those people who do. I don't have to, you know, I've always got food in my stomach and clothes to wear, and I've got good, loving people around me. You know, good loving people around me, and it's um, I have a blessed life today. But I'll tell you what, nothing comes to you, you know, whether it's mental health stuff, physical, business, or whatever, never comes to you sitting on your lounge waiting for you to come to you. You've got to get off your ass and have a go. If you want to be well mentally, you've got to do something about it. Like, you know, you've got to say, take whether it's getting up in the morning and going for a walk. I know for me, I, I talk to my son about it, I say, you know, just put the headphones on. You're free. You're not in a boys' home. You're not in a prison. And that gratitude, you know, I do simple things. I'm really big on gratitude, you know. And, you know, I see a prison van and I go, fuck, I'm grateful I'm not in that. I see, I see a prison van and it's, 
an instant dose of gratitude for me. You know, I see, look on TV and I see someone walking into court with a handcuffs on it. It's an instant dose of gratitude for me. But I, I can, I, you know, I, I go to the beach and watch the sun come up or whatever or, and I've got an instant dose of gratitude. And I think gratitude is great. I, I, I talk about it in, in a few weeks ago. I said, you know, my gratitude is the conduit between me and God or whatever it is. It's that connection where I go, you know what, whoever you are, whatever you I'm not, man, I'm not into Jesus or whatever, you know, but whoever you are, whatever you do, create this light in my life, man, I thank you for it, you know, because this beautiful sunset or whatever. So, you know, I'm really big on on that protection of my mental health. I don't have people in my life. If there's someone negative and, and, and you know, and all they do is whinge and whine and tell me how bad they got it, you know, Man, let's let's work out a plan. Let's do something about it. You're not willing to do anything about it. It's like see you later. Go find someone else. You know, it's it's really it's really really important that you know it's taken ownership of my like for me. It's really important for me to take ownership of my well being. You know, it's um and I, and I invest in it. The best investment I ever made, like I did get a compensation payout. The best investment I ever made was investing in myself. I, I put myself in a rehab. I established, you know, I established my business. I I paid for the best counselling that money could buy. You know, um, not everyone's got, not everyone's in that position, but I'll tell you what, there's enough agencies around, like I was talking to a girl yesterday who works for Lifeline and and if if she's a counsellor, man, like one hour talk with her just enriched my life. You know what I mean? If that's the type of people they've got, at Lifeline working for them, mate, kudos to them. I'll take my hat off to them, mate. You know, they're doing a great job. And I think, you know, if someone's struggling with, like, you know, I lost a brother to suicide. He, 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 he was a guy, he was from that era where they just didn't talk about their feelings, you know. And and he was, his story was a little bit, no, I don't know, too different, but he was hooked on poker machines, you know, and he, he loved the slap. And, and what happened? It just took, his, took away everything from him. It, it, you know, he couldn't. He couldn't enjoy anything, you know, he, his, his son and, you know, I mean, he, he never had money. He just, it just got the better of him, you know, and he was a really, and he was a really hard-working guy that just, in the end, got the better of him and he went to his work and he hung himself. And, um, you know, so, and I, you know, and that could have quite easily been me and, you know, and fortunately for me, you know, my mum went through that but also went through, you know, what I put her through and, um, you know, last year she passed away, but she passed away happy seeing that I've got my, my life together, you know, and um, really proud. And, and um, so, you know, it's it's a good life and, and we do recover. If we, you know, we make an effort to recover. You spoke about the healing aspect of talking. Uh, you've been quoted many times throughout a lot of articles with that. You spoke about the void and being angry and bitter throughout that. But, for people in those situations and who have that void and who have that feelings, what are some tips? Obviously, yeah, you spoke about speaking out. What are some other tips to look after your own mental health and well-being? I just I look, you know, not speaking out. It's it's like it's it's man, you, it's that 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 anger. As I like to, I, I I do this thing. It's called rewind. Let's go back. Let's rewind back to the tapes. Let's go back to what where the anger comes from, and I go the abuse. I'm angry because of that. You know what? For me, what came out of all the counselling and everything, I didn't deserve that. You know, I didn't deserve that. I didn't ask for it. You know, and um, there was a process. You know, the, the, I've done a process with my counsellor about the anger and that void, right? And she, she was amazing, and she said, 
and uh, and 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 I really broke it down. It simplified something for me. She goes, Russell, I've got a plan for you today. And I said, What's that? She said, Let's kill a child molester. And I'm there with bells on. I said, All right. She goes, All right. She said, um, So do you know where their one is? I said, I could jump a couple of fences and get the one. And she said. Um, all right, so what's the, so is there cameras there? And I said, yeah. And, and we've done a percentage thing, right? And she said, so you get over, and she said, how many cameras is about six? She said, so what, what do you reckon that, so ended up being, say, 50% chance of getting caught, right? And then she said, um, so when you get in there, how many blokes in the unit? 60. She said, how many of them were telling us, oh, 60, maybe 50 in that unit? So, we'll, so we got down to 0% chance of getting away with it. And those thoughts for me just were self defeating. You know, that's what I like to work. It takes, look, I don't expect people to get that straight away. What's that saying? There's a saying about anger and hate will rust the vessel it's contained in or anger or hatred or resentments are like drinking a cup of poison and hoping the other person dies for it. You know, so I do a lot of work on that. It's, and, man, I look, you know, and it's really it's really not easy when you're first struggling because, man, I'm, 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 I'm like 10 years deep into working on this stuff and, you know, and it, and and. But, you know, there's so much help around for this sort of stuff today, like whether it be Lifeline or Helpline or, man, or, or just going to sit. Like, because most survivors of, of abuse or, or people that have got that underlying issue, they're, they're, there's been a traumatic event, you know. I've got, you know, well-rounded people don't end up on drugs. Like, they don't end up with a full-on heroin habit, right? There's that underlying issue. <laughs> and I like to touch on that. I like to... Get back to, to people. I want to know the most violent guy. I want to know what made him violent, you know, because I, I talked to Cricket Service about it. I said, let's not look at the action. Let's look at what happened to make this bloke a, 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 a switch flick in this person's head to go, oh, that's the way to act. And it's normally another violent act. Like he's mostly had the shit punched out of him as a kid or being sexually abused or just being tortured or whatever. So it's all about getting back to that core root of that feeling. And as I say to you, it's, it's, it's not easy. And me being angry and me being ashamed and everything like that, a lot of that stuff didn't belong to me. And it's that acceptance for me of, look, that didn't belong to me. And and I didn't deserve One, you know, I didn't deserve it because when these people do these horrible things, they go, you deserve You got what you deserve. The courts go, you got what you deserve. That's deterrent. You'll never do that again, you know. So it's a matter of getting back to that, you know. And, and man... There's so much. I'll tell you what, there's a, an Aboriginal guy who I loved in jail. Biggest. And he, he looked like, he had a physique, he looked like one of those uh, uh, thoroughbred racehorses in the mountain yard. You could see every muscle in his body. He was just a, this bloke was just the best athlete I've ever seen, you know. And, 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 um, and, I, and I, I've done a couple of stick ups in that with him on the outside. And, um, and, um, but I remember him and he got out and really changed his life and he was on uh, Message Stick, which is an Aboriginal show, an Indigenous show on SBS and he said, you know, and he was talking about it and he goes, I was this tough guy in prison and everything like that. He said, but I didn't realise how much power there was, was in the ability to shed tears and cry, you know. And and then, I, you know, I've done a lot of talk like tears are like, you've got a pressure cooker. On a pressure cooker, there's a release valve on the top, yeah, and it lets off the steam and that sort of stuff. That's what tears are like. They, 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 and man, oh man, I fucking had to shed a lot of tears before I, you know, 
And I don't, man, I, I, this stigma that men don't cry and everything like that's a load of bullshit. It's self-defeating. It's so detrimental to men's mental health. It's so detrimental because because it's saying that men shouldn't express themselves, men shouldn't feel, and men should feel, and men should cry, and men should be allowed to, to feel vulnerable, you know, and, you know, and, and, and that's, that's been this whole thing to me, for me, my part of healing process is showing people my vulnerability and going, you know what, there it is. Judge me on it you want. If you think I'm weak because I'm, I'm being vulnerable, that ain't my problem, and I love that. Because when I'm when I'm vulnerable, someone judge me, man. That that says nothing about me. It says a lot about them. If they think I'm weak or whatever, that's that demonstrates their narrow minded, not my weakness. You know, I think it's really important. And I think we, as men, we sit here today talking, and and and, and men have got to step up and say to other men, "Hey, look, you know, it ain't weak to fucking cry. It ain't weak to talk about your emotions or feelings or anything like." Because this this whole and it stems, you know. Well, I've done some research on some of these really tough um, sort of boys' homes like Tamworth and jails like Grafton and where they were getting the shit bashed out of them and everything like that. And I, I didn't want to know what, you know, what about how the people got bashed for it. I wanted to know why the people doing the bashing were doing it. And, you know, and, and it tracked back to they had it all done to them and, and, and a lot of them, whether they were returned servicemen from the, the Second World War or the kids of returned servicemen from the Second World War that come back from them places really badly desensitised and it became intergenerational transference of violence. So they passed it on to their kids and then their kids went to work and perpetrated it on to other people. And, I, you know, I, I like to, to do some, and I want to know about that stuff because I want to know what makes people violent and I want to know what we can do about it as men we can sit here in this forum here today and sort of say, hey, man, well, like, we've got to address this sort of stuff because it's men are killing themselves over it. Like, whether you're, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, you know, those people that went off and bash those people and, and do all that sort of stuff, and surely there comes a point in time in life where you go, you know what, I was a shitbag for doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm surely there comes a point in time where you go, you know what, that weren't real good, what I've done. Surely there comes that point in time that you don't go to the grave going, hey, man, oh, fucking, that was so much fun bashing in blokes to smithereens with fucking batons and everything. Like, surely there comes that, like, you know. So, I, you know, I'd like to, be, I want to be a part of that healing process and, 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 and that's what we talk about here, you know. It's really important that there's men's groups, that men's, men talk about this sort of stuff because we heal from that. Couldn't agree more, mate, especially with the whole, you know, men being vulnerable. It can be such a a daunting topic even still you know there's so much awareness about mental health but obviously still not enough and and like you mentioned the stereotype for a man to cry well what's the difference if a man cries you know it's a human it's a it's literally like a, if a man gets angry they're a man's man but crying yeah. is literally the exact same except just another emotion that's kind of the way the way we see it and the way we want to look at it if i could ask you for a little bit of advice for someone who is not not necessarily young but say in your position when you were younger and you started that life of crime and you, or they're dibble and dabbling in it and they really want to kind of get invested in it. What, what would you say to them? No, look, it's, I think, I think what my mate said to me, the advice he gave me was like, it's a lonely old life. It's a lonely old life of that. That that's a very lonely life. And you know, I, what I know now, um, and there's a, there's a song I heard and it resonates every time I hear this song, it goes, an honest man's pillow is his peace of mind. You know, he's honest man's pillows, he's peace of mind. He gets up to work. There's, mate, 
the the real hero is the working man. Those guys that I look down upon that were getting up at six o'clock in the morning and getting home at six in the mate, they're the real heroes, really. You know, that's if I was wanted to be inspired by anyone now, it'd be them. You know, it'd be them. It's if you if your dad is getting out and going to work every day to make sure you've got to feed uh, food on your uh, your stomach or in a pair of shoes on your feet or whatever, he's a hero and don't ever look down upon him. Fucking treat him with the dignity and respect that he deserves because he deserves it because he's just a bloke doing his best. But um, I I uh, I encourage people to steer clear because man, once you get in there, that's a really hard system to break out of, and you it doesn't do anything for your confidence and doesn't do anything for your opportunity. You know these stories you hear of old oh, mate making hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. I'll tell you what happens is for every one of them, there's ten thousand that don't. So your opportunity, your chances of of getting out and being rich and everything like that are about ten thousand to one. You know, if you went to the Melbourne Cup and you seen a horse that was ten thousand to one, you wouldn't have a dollar on it. You know, you just wouldn't have a bet because, or you might have a dollar on it, but you wouldn't put your life savings on it because you know. And that's that's the gamble you take. You put your life savings into that bet that's got no chance of winning. You know. Um, I don't know. What I know now, you know, I work. I, you know, I, I love working. I love the challenge of working. I've really, I've got this. And I learned my, people say to me, where did you get your work ethic from? I was in jail for 23 years and I learned how them people, I, whatever they did in there, I do totally the opposite. Because corrective services know, one thing about corrective services, they know how to get it wrong. You know, and, and, and I just, and I do that. But well, getting back to that, to those you know, it's looking for, there's so much opportunity these days for, you know, there's, we've online and there's so much, you know, if you're a kid with a decent work ethic and a bit of an eye for opportunity, man, I'll tell you what, and it's just, yeah, man, I'd love to be what I know now. Like, I was talking to, you know, um, Low Key, he's a music producer, um, out in the Western suburbs and, and that rap culture and that out there, they, what the money these kids are making. And there's so much, I, I must sit on a train and hear these kids rapping to each other and going, man, you want to make a new, you want to have to do something, you know, you know, whether it's skateboarding or surfing or, or whatever, you know what I mean? But whatever you do, don't sit at home playing PlayStation, smoking cones and think it's going to come to you because it ain't coming to you that way. Life's about getting off your ass and, um, and going chasing what you want to be. You know, and what I what I I don't want to be is I don't want to be some bloke in a wing down at Long Bay being locked in myself for twenty eight days because that's 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 what awaits you. What happens is when you get to them joints, then prisons and the boys' homes, and you get treated like a shit bag, and you know, and you, you're hearing these stories of your mates celebrating the twenty first, and you're hearing you know your mate's twenty eight years old, he's just bought his first home and everything like that. And you don't want that, and, and you don't get it. Like I'll tell you. Not many, if any, and they've got things like crime commissions and that these days, mate. They just rob. They just come in. You you bought your house. You think you're away from it. Ten years later, they just turn up and take it off you one day. So you know it doesn't happen. Crimes. I'll tell you what. I, I really believe this. Crime will be a thing of the past in 25 years. You won't have. You won't hear of blokes getting around in Lamborghinis or anything. But they just pull them over and take you off. Oh, mate, you, you can't justify that. They just take it off you. You won't get ahead. And as I said, the real hero is the working man and an honest man's pillows his piece of money. You go and put in, what happens with work for me? As I, you know, you just put in there long enough and hard enough. You know, you know that the flip side is those guys that I'm actually seeing at that bus stop all those years ago, I'm actually ended up with two or three houses. I didn't see the end products. All I just seen was, 
the winter, um, maybe uh, two or three years of these people working hard, you know, they've actually done all right. And, and even if they didn't, I'll tell you what, they didn't do a day's jail. Their kids didn't go without. That's not a bad result. That's not a bad result because they're blokes that I used to look up to and have the nice cars and end up doing a whole heap of jail. Their kids are mostly doing a whole heap of jail and their kids' kids are mostly doing a whole heap of jail because that's all I knew. And, you know, that's not something that you want to pass on to someone. Because, man, you know, my, my young bloke, my oldest one, sort of got into trouble and he sort of he snapped out. My youngest one's really level-headed. He um, drives excavators. I'm so proud of him. He's got a, he's got my work ethic, which of, he was at that age where I came out of prison and he could I could demonstrate my work ethic to him. This is what you do, mate. You want to get ahead, you do it this way. And I, I got him in time, you know. But you don't want to pass that kid. You don't want to pass that sort of behaviour on your kids and, and uh, the end the entitlement attitude, you know, of, uh, you know, people thinking they're entitled. You're not entitled to nothing. Nothing's given to you, mate. You want it. Go out and work for it. Bust your ass. Make some sacrifices. And uh, it'll come to you, you know. That's because that, that life of crime, man, it's, man, I'll tell you what, they make it look good in the movies, some of them, you know. But it ain't. It's sad. It's lonely. The food. Oh man, I have nightmares about. Honestly, I have nightmares. I smell the garbage bin, and I smell a prison meal. You know, I really do. I walk past and go, "Oh, that smells like the Tuesday night special at fucking Long Bay." That's the rotten garbage bin, man. I'm telling you. I still, honestly, they come in my. Sometimes I wake up and go, "Oh, I think I fucking ate the fucking chicken curry," and it's fucking. People cannot. You cannot comprehend how they can get food so wrong. Like, I mean, you don't want it to be five-star gourmet. No two-for-ones? No, no, no two-for-ones, mate. None of that. There's no, mate. It's, it's, you, you cannot compromise. I'm telling you, you don't have trauma before you went to jail. You eat that food, you're going to end up with it. I'm telling you. You know, and depression, you know, because, it's, oh, man, I'm telling you, I'm just, and I'm a foodie, right? I don't drug, I don't drink. I love a good meal, you know? And I'm a, but, 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 but I understand the concept of prison. Prison's not there to be, you're getting five-star gourmet food and, and you live in a, because these things that people get, it's like holidays. Man, I'll tell you one thing I didn't, I never went to any prison that resembled a, a five-star hotel. Because I'll tell you what, if you went to a five, and I've, you know, I've stayed in a few hotels for traveling for work. If you went to a five-star hotel that resembled an inn that was like an in prison, you want your money back and you wouldn't be giving them a, a, a you know, a good rap or something like that. So this concept that people get, oh, prisons are... What these concepts people... And I was talking to a girl today who's a psychologist and she said, you know, isn't there rehabilitation in prison? I said, well, no. So, you know, and that, that's this... This is this thing about kids wanting to go on and do crime. You know, I can remember up at Lithgow Prison, we used to sell body bags, you know, and get paid $2 a day for selling body bags. And, and man, that was nothing about rehabilitation for me. I, and, I, and I said that to Commissioner a few weeks ago, speaking to Corrective Services Commissioner, I said, man, I didn't get rehabilitated from selling up body bags. I said, I don't, what was that all about? You know what I mean? And getting paid $2 a day because you treated a lot of slave labour in prison and that's why they, they like prisons to exist because they can get all this cheap labour. But... Um, and I said, my rehabilitation started when I was giving counselling and, you know, and I was put into a drug rehab or while well, I put myself into a drug rehab and, and I put myself into pro- proper trauma count, proper trauma counselling and, I, you know, I got involved in this boxing gym that I'm involved with up here. We've got the Maloney brothers and Barry Hall and, and some really good fighters. I go up there of a morning, even whether I go up there or train or not, I go up there to pick up on a winning vibe 
Because, you know, I hang around winners. Uh, you hang around as you pull on the jersey, you know. I hang around winners and I do winning things on a daily basis, you know. And that's what, that, that's that whole concept of, you know, finding your tribe, you know, and, 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 and blokes getting out of boys' hands or jails or, or not even going to there, you know. If your tribe ain't winning or your mates ain't doing winning things, find mates that are doing winning things, that are, that are, that are striving to do winning things. Because the ones that, you know, want to burn down houses or do crime or anything like that, they're not going anywhere. They're really not going anywhere. I, 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 I can guarantee you they're not going anywhere. Yeah, they, yeah, they are. They're going, they're going to prison or boys' homes and they're, going, they're not going to come out better people. Then prisons and boys' homes don't create better people. They, they create more, they break people, you know, and more damage people and everything like that. And the objective for me these days is to heal, not to get damaged. So that's staying away. Like I'm staying away from the damaged people, but trying to steer the damaged people into the right places because, you know, there's, um, that's what I, I, you know, I guess that's what I do for, for work. We try to steer the damaged ones into the right healing on, on the right path. And, um, but I don't, in saying that, I'm not going to sit around, I'm not going to invite a whole heap of people into my house and to sit around and, and, and just be shit bags, you know, to sit around and bag people or anything. But I don't want to be around that negativity. I've got to, you've got to have a, a, you know, you talk about Wayno. That guy's one of the most, Wayno, I'll talk to about, he wouldn't mind me saying his name on record because I'm really good friends with him, Wayne Cleveland, the big wave surfer from Maroubra. Now, that guy, mate, he's the most optimistic bloke you'll ever come across. Like, everything's just so positive. It was a good feed. It was a big wave. It was this and it was that. Like, he is looking for the gratitude in everything, you know. I'm gra- I gravitate to people like Wayne Cleveland because I want to be around them because their lives, you know, you know. I also gravitate to the person that's fucking, that's really depressed or anything like that because, you know what, I've got the blueprint out of there. I can say, this is what I did, and that's what I did. And you're welcome to, mate, you're welcome to join, and, and you're welcome. And, mate, I'll turn my phone on, and I'll take your phone call, but I'll stop taking your phone calls when you're not doing nothing about it. When you're sitting down there and ch- choosing to stay in it and go on, oh, 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 you know, because people, you know, some people become comfortable in that stuff, you know, and I'm not saying professional victims and stuff like that. There's some people with some really damaged things that happen to them and, and they, they, they struggle to f- find the energy. It's, that's that hard part sometimes when so many people are It's just get, giving them the energy, you know, and it's, man, I'll pick you up, but I won't carry it. It's fair to say, mate, you, um, you're going to affect a lot of people and you spoke before about how people coming out of prison, you only hear the negatives and I think if people can hear this story, then they're going to be touched and hopefully if they're hearing that story and they're in a little bit of a hole themselves, you give them the power to get out of it. Speaking specifically about your story, you'll be on Australian Story yeah, in the coming weeks. Australian Story, we're, we, we filmed and um, we're just waiting to reschedule. The, the, I just spoke with the producer today. So over the next few weeks, I think we'll be back on again. But I will, um, you know, people can follow me on Facebook, Russell underscore Mansar, um, and uh, the voice of a survivor, Russell Mansar on Facebook. Or you know, and, and I'll and, you know, and I'll, I'll keep people up to date. It's really important. It's it's. We, I'm just so stoked. You know, we um, 
we went and filmed at Long Bay and, and, and you know, you talk about healing things like that. It's a real funny thing, Australian story, because I'll do, like, I'll do eight takes, right? And like, they walk through the prison gate and it's like, can you do that again? Can you do that again? And they said, do you mind doing this? I said, man, it's like I've been released eight times. I don't mind do this all day. <laughs> Walking in and out the front gate of a prison, you dream of that when you're in prison. But we've got access to a lot of uh, places in there, and, I, and I, I can guarantee you that 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 Australian story, mate, that was something special. That was just so, and it was like people were concerned about me um, when I when I left, and I got about twenty phone calls because I, I I filmed that and I jumped in the car and went to the airport to come home to the Northern Rivers, and uh, man, it was so healing. It was so healing to go back there as an equal to go back and walk through them walk through them gates and not go in in a prison van was healing and to go back there and, and talk to guys and, and, and give them, plant some seeds of hope into them guys was healing for me because, you know, as an, I, I, I'll touch on the food, right? And we're halfway through it and the governor there said, I oh, will grab a feed. And I said, oh, I can't, can't eat this jail food no more. And it was, I was like, I couldn't do no more jail food. And, and we went to the governor's office and, and had some real food. And that was really good. And that was healing. And it sort of eased my, eased my concern. But, um, but to lead to, to, have officers say to me, like some of them officers that have known me for 30 years to say, mate, you're doing such good work, Russell, you know what I mean? So that was rewarding. And that, that day, that eight hours that I was in Long Bay was really just one of the best things I've ever done. And, you know, that's, you know, for, for me personally, it was just such a good amount. I was just, I, I drove to Pagewood Shopping Centre. I had to go and buy a bag and um, I drove to Pagewood and I was just buzzing, you know, um, because um, that's what I, you know, I encourage people to do that. I watched this show called Indian Runner and in this Indian Runner, this bike gets out of jail and he, he goes back to his old area and gets his push bike and he goes and does all them things that he did when he was a kid, do the fucking skids through that thing and that, you know, and I, I, I dreamed of doing that, you know, going back to Mount Druitt and doing that. And I want to do it soon. I'm going out to Mount Druitt next Friday to talk to Cobb and Boys hunting and, um, I might even do it. Then I was talking to my mate about it. But he goes, mate, let's fucking grab a couple of BMXs and do it, you know, because it's good for blokes like us to get in contact with that inner child stuff. Like there's a guy on an Aboriginal bloke called Joey Williams. He does, he's got the program called The Enemy Within on Instagram and Facebook. Top bloke. We, we've had Joe on. He's an awesome bloke. Top bloke. And he talks about embracing the inner child, you know, and, and, and that sort of stuff. And, you know, and I do things like, you know, I, you know, I, I remember I, I lived near the Gold Coast and I remember we used to go to Tullabudra and there's a, a beach up there and, and as a family we used to go and sit on the beach and I used to think, man, people live up here, they must have the best life and I, I don't mind going and sitting on that beach and in, and sort of embracing that, like that inner child sort of stuff. You know, I, I, there's, there's a lot of stuff I do. I do um, meditations from time to time. I do this meditation where... And I just take myself back and, and people say, I don't know why you do that. And I, and I do this one where I spend 30 seconds, right? I remember when I was pinched on five armed robberies and I was at Blacktown Police Station and um, I woke up at Blacktown's Police Station had my a big puddle of bile from vomiting next to me. I was in a world of pain. I had, you, know, you talk about voids, I had like a 40-gallon drum void in my stomach. So what I do is I go back for like 30 seconds a day and meditate on that feeling, right? And I, I can remember and I can, I can sit in here now and I can feel that sickness in that, my stomach as, as I think about it. Then I ask myself a question, do I want that? And I say no, and I don't have to have it. But I always remember how bad that shit felt. 
I always keep it close to me how bad that shit felt because I never want to have to feel that again. I never want to have to have 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours that in my life again. I don't have to. All I've got to do is get up and do the next right thing. All I've got to do is continue to do the work on myself and invest in me, believe in others, have faith, and you know what? I'm going to have a pretty good life now. And I, you know, I've got a good life today. And I was with a girl for four years who was a barrister. You know, the bank robbers and the barrister men who were together for four years. We recently broke up. You know what? You know, that's life. We go through trials and tribulations, you know. That's a heartbreaking going for But you know what? I'll tell you what didn't cross my mind, picking up drugs. You know, I was I was heartbroken, you know, because it didn't work out. And But it didn't cross my mind because I know that's not the answer no more to dealing with the pain or depression or anything like that. I just know there's other ways and I know there's better ways. And um, and I, I don't know, I I just, and you, you sort of come out of that and after a while you, you're starting to feel good again and and you just think, fucking, you know, it's like that pride in yourself. Like, you know, I, I, I used to be going, I'm really proud of myself. You know, people think that's a bad thing. You should say it. Blokes should say it. Man, I conquered this, I'm really proud of myself. You should say that stuff because you should be proud of yourself because sometimes those things kill other men. You know, this, you know, I, I, I just, yeah, and I am, man, I, like I'm proud of myself. I just went for a heartbreaking breakup and I didn't pick up drugs, which I would have done in the past. I continued on my life, I, I, you know, and, 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 and I just believed in myself that things would get better and they did. You know, there's a saying, they say it in your name, they say, um, if you're feeling bad, go and do something nice to someone else. Go and know someone's lawn or put their rubbish bin out or whatever, you know. Go and do something. And, and, I, and I do that a lot and, um, and I do. I feel pretty good. You know, I, I, try to, I try to just do whether it's, you know, give someone a couple of bucks on the street or whatever or, or like, you know, um, I give up drugs and I bought up running shoes. So I've got like a big collection of running shoes, right? I've got shoes up there that I, that I and, you know, and I, I do that all the time. You know, I was, you know, I see someone who do, just got out of jail. I've got, I've got a thing on um, Facebook. It's called Australian Advocates for Prisoners and Their Families. I, I kicked that off about a year ago. We've got 17,000 people on there. And, um, you know, and I'll see someone struggling. So whether it's going to send them some clothes or whatever that I'm not going to use or, you know, but I like to do things, nice things for people and not expect nothing in return. And that's not how I used to be because it was always that, I'll do this, but I want that back, you know. And there's so much joy. I remember when I was in prison, the Buddhism people do this thing. It's called the Prisoners Liberation Project. It's a Buddhism course, you know. And I just thought, fuck, I've got nothing else to do. I'll do it, you know. And part of the project, part of the thing was you're to do something nice to someone and not let them know they do it. So... I'm thinking, how am I going to do that in here? So I noticed in 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 the wings they've got this washing machine and, and, and dryer. So what I was doing when there was no one was around, I'd sneak in and pull their clothes out and fold all their clothes up and put them in there. And I was being real shifty about it. And it became a big mystery in there. So they folks were wanting to know who folded their clothes up so neatly and everything like that. And I weren't telling anyone, you know. And they put it under surveillance. I still got away with it, you know, because no one would expect it, that I'd be doing it, you know because I had that reputation as sort of, you know, too cool or whatever or too tough or whatever to do that sort of stuff. But I was doing it sneakily and, and it became a sort of a pain in my life. I love doing nice things for people and not expecting nothing. It's so pure. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your story. 
Thank yeah, you for no being worries. so honest and um and open. And I know I took so many little things out of that that can just improve your life. You know, the things like gratitude, doing things for people without wanting them to know, but also just being honest with yourself and recognizing that hard times are a part of life and mm. you're going to grow from them and become a better person. Where can, so obviously the voice of the survivor, we look forward to seeing you do more things with that. Where can people find you on Instagram and Facebook? Russell underscore Mansa on Instagram, Russell Mansa on Facebook. You can go to um, where voice of a survivor on uh, Instagram and then with www.thevoiceofasurvivor.com is our, our, our thing. But we, we love to hear it from people. Like if there's anyone that's struggling or anything like that, we can help, you know, especially in regards to any sort of abuse and that sort of stuff. We, we love that we've got runs on the board and um, we love to help people. But, um, yeah, man, just friend requesting them. I think my Instagram's on, on public, so anyone can jump on there and, you know what I mean, and, and you know, and, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Keep us updated with what you do as well and going into more boys' homes and talks and obviously the Australian story. Yeah, no worries, guys. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it a lot. No worries. Turn up the talk podcast. Tackling mental health together.